0: Do we really know our friends? Do we really know our families? And do we really know ourselves? Are we rational agents who are able to make autonomous, logical decisions? Or are we animals chained to our own strange, secret natures? And here's a much more pressing question, can I survive interviewing two guests at once? Well, you'll find out soon enough, dear listener, because coming up on the show, we Have two guests. We have uh, Yang Ge and Jeremy Tiang. They're going to be coming on to talk about the book they, you know, respectively wrote and translated, Strange Beasts of China. So, needless to say, I was very thrilled to have these two on, and the conversation was well, it was hard for me to keep up because they're both so sharp and have so many interesting things to say about Strange Beasts, as you might expect. But uh, before the interview, we're going to do the Truchific News, the translated Chinese fiction news. Of course, I'm excited about that too, so let's get to it. So the first news item is actually something I was talking about with uh, Jeremy just before we started the interview. It's a book uh, that he translated that will be coming out through Columbia University Press in September this year, 2021. It's uh, a novel called Far Away, by Lo Yichin. It's from Taiwan. It's Taiwanese literature. Something which I really need to do more of on the show. I'm actually, I had a shower thought about doing a Taiwan season um, at some point, I guess, this coming year. I think that could be fun. But yeah, in any case, I'll just read the first blurb, the first paragraph of the blurb for this book. um, Because I do think it sounds interesting. And I guess Some of the books that come out through academic presses like uh, Columbia University Press sometimes don't end up with as much visibility as books that are coming out through Penguin and the like. So I think it would be good to give this one a little bit of a bump. So here's the first half of the blurb. In Taiwanese writer Lo Yichin's Far Away, a fictionalized version of the author finds himself stranded in mainland China, attempting to bring his comatose father home. Lo's father had fled decades ago, abandoning his first family to start a new life in Taiwan. Oh, sorry, after travel between the two countries becomes politically possible, he returns to visit the son he left behind, only to suffer a stroke. The middle-aged protagonist ventures to China where he embarks on a protracted struggle with the Byzantine hospital regulations while dealing with relatives he barely knows. Meanwhile, back in Taiwan, his wife is about to give birth to their second child. Isolated in a foreign country, Lo mulls over his life, dwelling on his difficult relationship with his father and how becoming a father himself has changed him. Um, Jeremy told me this book uh, was a tricky one to translate because it's so complex and strange at times, but he said, it, I think he said it was a, a beautiful piece of literature. So, this is one to keep your eye on. So It won't be out for whoa, more than half a year, but um, I shall be keeping my eye on it for sure. So, that's our first piece of news. Here's our second piece of news. So, long-time listeners will probably notice that in these news segments we have pretty consistently at least one piece of news about Chinese sci-fi in translation, and here is some really crazy news, kind of about Chinese sci-fi literature, kind of about it in translation, but maybe more it's about uh, TV. <laughs> um, it's a three-body piece of news, you might have caught this over Christmas, some pretty mental shit. Uh, I tweeted on uh, everyone's favorite website, Twitter, um, saying this was like something out of a Murong Shuetsun novel, or at least the two ones you can get in translation, um, because it's about like, well it appears to be about corporate revenge, quite murderous revenge, or something. But yeah, I'll I'll stop hinting and I'll start saying. A man called Lin Chi, -Chi, who was uh, a billionaire millennial, and the guy who acquired and sold, I guess, or managed the, I guess, film, movie, media rights for um, Neil Tsuchin's three-body problem, is dead. Of poisoning, of being poisoned by, um, well, the most likely likely suspect is one of his uh, colleagues in the company he worked at, or owned, I guess, Yuzu, who were a gaming company best known for a uh, online strategy game based off a Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones Winter is Coming. And yes, I am reading this off the article I'm going to link to in the show notes. Um, So yeah, rather than laying out the uh, min- minutia of this news story, I will link to the New York Times coverage of it in the show notes, but other sources are certainly available. This one's this story's been covered in many uh, uh media outlets and news outlets. so you can just Google like three body poisoning and you'll have all sorts of different uh, articles you can read in English about it. It's just absolutely mental, quite shocking actually. and I don't like to throw around words like shocking. I prefer words like mental. But I would go so far as to say this is pretty nuts. The stakes, I think, for three body are maybe higher than the sorry. The stakes for the three body Netflix adaptation are perhaps higher than one would at first think, or they're as high as I might have suspected, which is like insanely high. Okay, last piece of news. So, long time listeners may have also noticed I often lift news from Paper Republic, or I'll cover something they've done and. We are doing that again for our third news item, but this time in a very meta way. We're doing news about Paper Republic's news. They've started doing a news roundup. Uh, the very first one went up online on January sixth, um, and it's pretty good because it's mostly just a collection of links uh, broken up into categories. Um, so click the link in my show notes to get to their um, basically <laughs> collection of really interesting links, but they're they're broken up into news events, extracts and stories, these are stuff you can read online, Uh, reviews and releases and media and I'm slightly biased here because one of the media links is to my podcast episode on Guffey's Peach Blossom Paradise but whatever, that's not why I'm covering it. <laughs> I'm covering it because it's a great resource for uh, I guess you guys, the listeners. So yeah, go check that out. now. It is time to go to the interview, but I am going to be slightly cheeky and plug uh, the show's Patreon first. So be forewarned. Uh, The reason I'm doing it this time is because I've started, I've kind of got a standard format for uh, some of the bonus episodes set up, uh, preliminary thoughts. So basically after I finish a book that I'm likely or I'm definitely going to cover on the show, I'll kind of unload my reaction, so to speak, to it, my initial thoughts, on the book into like a bonus episode. So these are available in two places on the show's Patreon which you can get access to uh, from one USD a month or more if you want to be generous. Or if you would rather get access to all the bonus shows with a one-off payment, I have a premium feed on Podbean uh, where you can get everything for 10 USD and then you never have to pay anything again. Uh, both Links to both of these are on the support page on the uh, my Podbean homepage for the website Um There's other ways to support the show too, they're all on the support page. I will stop begging for money now because I think as we are ushered into digital serfdom by the virus, um, as that process is sped up, this is is life for a lot of people, asking for money online. You guys will be hearing more and more of it, I think. That's my prediction for the future. Uh, But political rants aside, let's get on with the interview. (laughs) So I'm on the show with Yang Ge and Jeremy Tiang, the writer and translator of Strange Beasts of China. So the first time we got two guests on the show at the same time. So I'm very excited. To both you guys, Happy New Year, belated Merry Christmas, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. How are you both doing?
1: I am doing okay, relatively, I think. Um, it's been, you know, quite um, a dramatic beginning of a new year. But I heard um, as soon as the Chinese New Year happens, which is the real turning point of the year, everything will be all right. So <laughs> just <laughs> just waiting for that, uh, which will be, I don't know, somewhere in February to kick yeah. in and then this world is going to be cleansed instantly.
0: Well, it's not too far off now. And Jeremy, how, how are you
2: doing? Well, same year, really. I, I feel like we're still in the dregs of the year of the rat and Yeah, from, I think it's February 12th. Um,
0: Hopefully things will be in a more stable place. Yeah, um, I'm, pardon my ignorance. What's the next animal after the rat? Um, It's the ox. Ox, right. Okay, a larger animal. Um, Both your names have popped up on this show quite a lot either in passing or in the news, uh, the news segments I do at the start. And of course, we've we've covered one of your uh, books, Yan, on the show before, uh, Chilli Bean Pace Clan. So the listeners might be a wee bit familiar with who you both are, but just for like a consistency's sake and for any new listeners, can you both tell us a wee bit about yourselves and what you do? And maybe Yan, if you want to go first.
1: I am a writer. I mostly write fiction. I actually only write fiction. Um <laughs> And now I'm I'm writing oh well I say I write both in Chinese and in English, but the real reality is that I can only really write in one language okay. <laughs> um, for a relatively long period of time. And and so mostly um my writing would be in Chinese and I have um a number of books in Chinese <laughs> that was published mostly um actually throughout my twenties. I would mm-hmm. say. And so this one in particular, Strange Beasts of China, and in Chinese is Yi and I wrote this book many years ago, and sort of like the first novel I, I've ever written in my 20s, I would say. And yes, so and now I am based in Norwich, and I just did um, a creative writing MFA um, at the university here, and in uh, University of East Anglia, and and then I was stopped from making any further plan by the circumstance. So I'm, I'm in origin doing this podcast now.
0: Yeah, I've heard um, University of East Anglia. That's like the place for creative writing in academia in the UK. Is is that why you went for it? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. I've I like when I was thinking about that, I wanted to do a um a MFA or MA. I wanted to do a creative writing and degree and yeah that was most people recommended this one to me and uh, we and we came to Norwich like my family and before I officially decided I wanted to take the offer um, and I really fell in love with the city with like I think it's a really nice place especially for people who are having a, who has like a small child and I think it's really family friendly so yeah I think it's both the university and also the city seems to be the right place for us to be like say two almost three years ago when my son was only a few months old that definitely seems like the right place it's very kind of you know it's a tranquil and kind of a relaxed place Um, and now seems even more so and it's kind Mm -hmm. of like really tucked in so (laughs) so yeah
0: yeah that's um that's relatable. Me and my girlfriend just moved from basically a little cabin hut thing in the countryside to uh, the suburbs I grew up in, and yeah, mm. everywhere's everywhere. They were fairly peaceful places before, but now that everyone's indoors all the time, they're they're really peaceful. So One small mm. upside. Um, so J- Jeremy, uh, what about a little bit about yourself and and what you do? So I'm a novelist, playwright, and translator from
2: Chinese. Um, originally from Singapore and I've been
0: based in New York for the last eight years. Cool and you've I, it just occurred to me you have translated one of the things we've covered on the show it was a play um, not a novel it was um, Jensa Anne's Ocean Hotpot um, and that was mm-hmm. when I was lucky enough to attend in Edinburgh so that's uh, yeah, both of you guys have, in a sense, been on the show before, but now you're really both on the show. So great to have you both. Um, keeping things moving, Jan, you mentioned that this book is one one of several, I guess, that was pub you wrote and was published when you were in your 20s. So I think it would be good to start the interview by looking back in time it's like the kind of the origins of the book both in the original chinese and this um, english translation so uh first questions just for you yan um what can you tell us about the like uh, inception of uh Yi Shouzhi, the original chinese edition of strange beasts of china
1: i'm glad that i've been asked this question like sort of repeatedly recently since mm-hmm. the English version came out so I've had time to refresh my memory or to make up a fake of <laughs> <series laughs> memories just to cover this question and um, so that was literally um, 15 years ago and um, right. and and I think I think for me the main incentive was that um, I think it was really commissioned so there was this editor uh, who works for this magazine like sort of like literary journal for say high school or college students so for young people Mm. and it's called so um, youth literature I suppose and it's based in Beijing and then this editor he um, I don't know why but he was talking to me to say would you want to write like a serial serialized um, novel or just write something for us and so we can maybe publish whatever this project is, like every issue like monthly basis and then I thought it would be very good for me to have some so I was at that point not in a very in a very sort of low point of my life and my mom had just passed away maybe I don't know maybe at that point maybe just say one month ago at that point so 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 I was just really trying to get something to have like a certain structure with my life and this one book like strange beasts of china was the only thing the only the only book or the only kind of relatively major project and i did based on the commission i think it was really because i just wanted to have some structure to my life Mm. and then this editor and so i think that this very nature of being commissioned determines and a the structure of this book which is um so we we published one chapter um each issue for that magazine on each issue so you kind of wanted the the chapter to be sort of relatively self-contained so that's why each chapter in this novel is kind of like you know you could really read it individually it's like a small story but um, I I suppose all those stories are uh, still like linked and and then and then this editor and specifically said to me, please make it straightforward, because our readers are mostly um, you know, like quite young. So don't don't make it too obscure. That's what he said to me. Mm. Obviously, I had even back then the reputation of writing obscure things. And <laughs> and so I think I really uh like kept that in mind when I was right. So so I think um strange beasts of China were really kind of different from the majority of my writing, like my books and in Chinese, and um, it's quite fast moving. It's quite plot driven. And and then I remember specifically that I decided to use lots of short sentences. Um, and then the sentences were even in a way kind of fragmented, uh, which wouldn't be like, you know, something I would have um, chose if it wasn't for this sort of heads up of like make it straightforward. Although I don't really know how, if this decision had actually made it straightforward but that's my interpretation of it and um, yeah so i just did that sort of based on um chapter by chapter basis and, and and being chased by this poor editor who decided to commission me and i was such a terrible terrible person to work with and i was 21 years old so i was quite oh, yeah. you know i was um I don't think I was personally getting drunk, but when I was writing this, I was, I, I, I lived in student rental house and mm. like this apartment just off campus. And we have three bedrooms. So I had, I was in one of those bedrooms and then the other two bedrooms had like a couple, uh, two couples, one, uh, one of them, both are poets. Like they were sort of post lit- uh, students in like Chinese literature department. And then the other one was a bass player of a rock band and then his girlfriend. So I was living in this house while I was writing this. And I remember so clearly, like, because I always stay up late and then write um in the nighttime. And then when I finished my writing, and then there would be all sorts of noise going on while I was trying to like, because they were having party in this apartment like every day. <laughs> and oh. I'd finish the story and then I'd go out. And it'd be like bodies you know just lying <laughs> on the floor of the <laughs> sitting room like getting absolutely hammered all those people having partied all night and like all the bottles of beer bottles and some kind of you know um so they back then there was this sort of a small bottles of baijiu like chinese liquor it's like mm. our or just like those really cheap and strong mm. liquor bottles like everywhere and the bathroom would be absolutely disgusting. Oh <laughs> no. So it's kind of a um I mean that I think it's a backdrop of this story actually if you do read this book you you'd get a lot of that a lot of like uh, aggressive drinking, a lot of like mm. people be- being sick and throwing up in the bathroom, and it was really like the the surrounding when I was writing it. But I think you know, think about it like now, and I think psychologically, and all of those noises, those backdrop noises, really um have permeated, and then have really become part of this writing experience, and then it, they they have been integrated, isn't? An, and also, I think the reason I live i i decided to live in that apartment and it was really a reflection i think of where i was on psychologically like i think that kind of chaos that kind of um Mm. um, getting out of control that sense was really how i felt about my life so i i positioned myself in that place and where i wrote this book so it's all it's all like a reflection of everything that's going on and in the background also part of it yeah sorry, I spoke too much. It's always, you have to like, have like a bell to say, yeah, this is too much. Now stop. And now stop. <laughs> well, just...
0: One of <laughs> one of the things I hate most about myself when I do these things is I'm not, I've never been good at cutting in on other people in a, what's the word, like a socially apt way. I tend to just go, uh, uh um, 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 and sometimes I don't even cut through. And sometimes it's easy to edit out. Sometimes I just sound like a, a goon. But no, that anyway. That was a great answer. So doesn't doesn't matter. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong.
1: I need to. I just try to find a timer. Actually, find a timer for myself.
0: <laughs> oh no! Don't don't put that much pressure on yourself. Um, it's interesting that you were 21 because I knew you're in your 20s. I didn't realize it was like barely in your 20s. But that I did notice is that there's a lot. There is a lot of alcohol drinking in in the book. Um, because the cover is this very sort of elegant. At least in the English edition, it's a very like elegant feather dropping to the ground. I wouldn't have guessed that so much of the book the main character would be in a sort of like a dive bar knocking back beers, but I'm not complaining. Let's go on to the next question. It's a question for you both. Um what can you tell the listeners about how the English edition Strange Beasts of China and uh, published by Tilted Access came about? So, I'm throwing this one to both of you. Whoever wants to take it first can go for it.
2: I was I was trying to remember how we met actually. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I do, which is very in keeping with the um, ethos of the book. Um, mm. I remember meeting for coffee in New York um, after mm. you'd been on that mad multi-city tour of Chinese writers. Um, mm. And we sort of ran around the city. Um, and, and you were with Hu Qingfang, Fang. And mm. I named a coffee shop and then got there and found that the coffee shop had shut down, which is a very New York experience. Um, so we met um, at a theater cafe instead. And, and after that, you sent me the book. Um, but I feel like we had met way before that. And I don't remember how, do you? Um,
1: yeah, I do. And um, I was just about to say when you ask, um, we, we met at the British Museum. Do you remember with um, Helen Wong and Francis um, from Leeds oh. and Nikki Harmon? And I was with Nikki because I was, um, yes. yeah, so she she was, I don't know who arranged that meeting, um, but Nikki was saying, oh, we're going to go meet those people and, and you were there. And you, you I, I remember that time when, when we met and you talked about how much you wanted to move back to England. I think you had just moved to the States. Because when you were introducing yourself, you said, I've, I've been based in New York for the last eight years and I thought is that how long has it been now like since
0: because
1: I still remember the first time you you talk about um, yeah because you were in the UK for like 10 years is it or
0: more than that yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it's quite a star lineup of um, people all gathered in the museum at least in terms of uh, translated Chinese fiction (laughs)
1: because <laughs> one, well, she works there do you know that right
0: mm, yeah in the coin yeah, yeah, section yeah.
1: i think yeah yeah so so that's um yeah and and i i personally just couldn't believe i still couldn't quite believe that and jeremy decided to translate this book yeah i i i said on um, a different occasions but it really is like a blessing is a is such a it's, it's something that I couldn't quite believe still. And, and I thought that I'm really blessed to have Jeremy translate, and um, to pick up and then to translate this, this
2: book. I feel incredibly blessed that I got to translate this book oh. and, and to live inside it for so long because um, it really is um, a bit like an out-of-body experience. Jens um, <laughs> yes, writing it, it kind of literally takes you outside of your own mind. And I, I think because because you wrote it in such an episodic way, um, the we sort of did the first chapter as a standalone story to see what would happen. Mm. Um, and it was it was published by Two Lines Journal. Um, right. and, and then I guess much like the experience with, with the editor and the serialization, it was like, well, let's keep going and see what happens. Um, mm. And then at some stage, Deborah Smith got involved and Tilted Axis picked up the book.
0: Um, and Deborah Smith, she's the uh, the boss of Tilted Axis, right? And she's a translator of Korean into English. Am I right?
2: Yes, Deborah Smith is the Booker Prize winning um, Korean translator of many books by Han Kang and mm. Um And she used her Booker Prize winnings to set up Tilted Axis Press. Which publishes books um, predominantly, but not exclusively, by women
0: um, from Asia. Right. Yeah, I got my girlfriend onto reading uh, *The Vegetarian* just recently, so I guess Smiths uh, <laughs> fresh in my mind for that reason. That's a really that's one of the best translated books I've read. Um, but I, yeah, I guess we can move on from the origins of the book. One thing I forget forgot to put in the list of uh, questions to you guys is like kind of what the book's about. So I'll I'll just read the blurb from the back. And <laughs> I think that should clue in anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about. Um, so the, the hook line is, all we have are stories, and here's the blurb. In the city of Yongan, an amateur cryptozoologist is commissioned to uncover the secrets of its fabled beasts. These creatures live alongside humans in near inconspicuousness, some with ancient forebears, others engineered as artificial breeds. Guided, and often misguided, by her elusive university professor and his scrappy student sidekick Liang, our narrator finds herself on a mission to track down each species part detective story, part metaphysical inquiry. Strange Beasts of China addresses existential questions of identity, being, love, morality with whimsy and grace. So um, I am—I did a bonus episode for my Patreon feed where I sort of did my preliminary thoughts on the book. And I tend to be a bit lazy when I record those. So I use the blurb and other things as a jump-off point to have something to talk about. And sometimes if a book's blurb doesn't really describe it, I grumble about it. But I think this, there's not much... this blurb doesn't hit on as like a summary of what you're in for if you're picking up the book apart from maybe all the the drinking sessions (laughs) is there anything else we should mention or do you think that's a good intro to the book
1: that sounds good to me actually and i'm very impressed you read out that um word (laughs) because i'd always say that's a zoologist and then i saw that word you know the word the I don't know how to say that. Oh, it crypto
0: cryptozoologist.
1: Cryptozoologist, and then I looked it up. I was like, oh, that's what it is, and and it's um it's one of those experiences, you know. It's like um it's like you, if you're um, looking at the world through a language, and this language is a lens, and sometimes um a tiny corner of that lens is just frogged and then you have to mm. sort of wipe it clean. And the moment you wipe it clean, and now you can see that very specific like dot in the world (laughs) which was previously covered by the like the non-existence of this word and now you have this word you see that (laughs) and I thought that was
0: yeah it's it's an interesting word it's very long but to me anyway it rolls off the tongue quite easily unlike maybe I don't know uh, inconspicuousness that's, I was worried I was going to mispronounce <laughs> that one. And it's an interesting one too, because everyone, well, you don't need to know too many words to know what a zoologist is, but mm. you don't need great English to know what crypto means, but you don't necessarily know what a cryptozoologist is when they're put together, unless someone tells you that, you know, what, what the word, what the prefix crypto is doing there, that it means, you know, Loch Ness monster and those sorts of beasts but um, <laughs> we've, I've totally gone off track um, <laughs> or at least I've waffled a bit too long but I seem to have been waffling in the right direction because the next questions are about the beasts uh, inside the book because as you were saying the, the it's kind of like one beast per chapter or per story or per episode in the episodic structure so the beasts are, are, are really key You know, it's not just that the word beast is in the title so the beasts in the book themselves they're quite vulnerable all of them they're all quite human some of them but not all of them are innocent some of them but not all of them are quite jaded or world weary maybe Uh, some but not all of them are very deadly or could or could transform you in some not particularly or not completely pleasant way Uh, some are angelic some aren't it's just kind of hard, down, hard to boil all these beasts down into one thing. So it's hard for me to boil down what I want to say into a question or a statement. But I do have something I'll try and ask Yan. Uh, uh, to what extent, Yen, are these beasts completely your own creation? And if they're not completely your own creation, uh, what sources did you draw on for ideas or inspiration?
1: I think realistically I cannot say those are completely my own creation because even subconsciously, right? I must mm. have been influenced by something I was reading um or I had read or watching more likely. <laughs> um yeah, so but but I, I I don't remember that I consciously borrowed anything from anywhere. But that is not to say that I'm incredibly original or something. <laughs> and I think the idea of doing this kind of um um it's like an encyclopedia sort of um this like you have all the entries like like the format of this book and I think I definitely borrowed that from the you know the the Chinese and the classic book is called Shanghai Jing so it's Mm. it's like the classic of mountains and seas so it's kind of those um The format is, um, I think, is borrowed from books like that. And then then in terms of um, the creation of the beasts, I think the most difficult part for me is to come up with the names of the beasts. So I think the first chapter, the first story uh, was... The easiest one was like Bei Shou, so it's sorrowful beasts, and it really came to me quite naturally, like this name, and then and then I wrote the story um based on that, and and that, and I think I sort of developed so obvious like I don't know if this is a spoiler, but like for a uh, sorrowful beasts, so they the the sort of the punchline. <laughs> them is that they don't smile once they smile they couldn't stop and then they would die and so it's kind of it came directly like this um sort of a essential trait and um, came from their name and and then uh, similarly I think and um, after finishing Sorrowful Beasts so when I was like set on to um, the mission of writing chapter two, the second beast, it took me so long to find the name of this beast. So what I was trying to get was something like Beishang, like, like this kind of name, the naming of them, like the name doesn't feel um, specifically classic or modern. If you know right. what I mean, it's like kissing uh, Chinese and um, like in the Chinese version <laughs> of, of this book is uh, there's a little bit of a mixture. So the beginning and the end of each chapter is sort of um written in sort of quasi <laughs> classic Chinese, and then the middle right. part um was um modern Chinese. So I think I wanted the name to kind of um. To maybe to be a bit timely in the sense it could be from classic Chinese, but also they were uh, not very strange because you don't want to use like a character that is really obscure that you have to really look it up like even as a Chinese reader. So you want something like Beishan, like you know the the characters the the phrase was like um, commonplace enough, but also it has like this sense of um. Ancientness in it, so I was mm. like looking for things like that that could be both interpreted like an old name or a new name, so you don't really know if it's old or new, and and so that was the the biggest challenge I think for me um to create so to speak on those beasts is to find the right names for them and that carries this sort of timeless quality would you say, and um, mm. and so I and then I think I I came. Came up with the second one, which is the opposite of sorrowful. Beishang is le is joyless. And then I went on from there, and then yeah. So I think each time uh, there was the most challenging part was to think of the name. And once I came up with the name, and then the rest of like the traits of the beasts, and you know their likes and dislikes, and or their like hidden secrets, and those things seem to be. Um well, like now looking back, it seems like everything just fairly just came out very naturally. I mean, the story, but I'm sure I was <laughs> massively <laughs> struggling at that point, like um, 15 years ago when I did it. Uh, but I I I I think the sort of um, the decisive moment for each beast to establish as a creature, as a kind of creature, um, was um, was a moment when their names were found, so mm. to speak. Yeah.
0: You've reminded me of something um, that stuck in my brain around Christmas time. I was uh, getting a lift from my stepdad in the car and normally him and my mom, they listen to like BBC Radio 2, which is a very Mm. it's a radio station for people maybe about their age and a bit younger. And it uses like pretty it's not too high minded. You won't hear of any many strange vocabulary words on there. But this day, I think he was listening to the classic radio station. I guess he's looking for more chilled out music or peaceful, beautiful music in these times. Uh, But the radio host was um, quite happy being a bit more intellectual. And he just threw out this phrase and nominative determinism. And I was like, whoa, that's a word for my undergraduate. (laughs) What's that? But it's the it's a thing's nature is determined by its name. So, yeah I guess mm. <laughs> I just got a flashback to sitting in the car listening to whatever radio station that was because again we have got some nomina- nominative determinism um, for these beasts. Um, I thought it would be good to talk slightly about a little bit about the Shanghai Jing because um, we talked a little bit about that the three of us by email kind of in the run-up to the show and it's it's been a weird thing for me uh, because in like three or four things at once that I've been reading or have been involved with, the Shan Hai Jing's come up. Uh, I'm reading Beijing Koma right now. That references a lot. it a lot. Your book has a sort of, a, the opening bits of the chapters uh, reminded me a little bit of some of the excerpts of the Shan Hai Jing I've read, where it kind of just describes like where a particular beast lives, what it likes to eat, and um, what they mm-hmm. look like. That reminded me of those excerpts. And even just beastries have been on my mind um, because occasionally I'll ask. So my girlfriend just finished a PhD on uh, wolves in Anglo-Saxon literature, but occasionally I forget what it was that she did for her master's. So whenever I forget, she reminds me that her master's dissertation was on medieval European bestiaries, which also have all these strange animals. Some of them are real some you'd never ever meet, and some are strange imaginings of what a like a panther is, but they're only half correct or whatever. So is there I don't know, is there anything else either of you would want to say about how us as modern people get revisited or by or how we revisit these old beast series or what relevance they might have to us today? Is there anything we could say? I
2: think there's um something very human about the beasts in this book. Mm. Um, And for a lot of them, um, it felt like the entry point was the intersection with their beastliness and their humanity. Um, Because the running theme through the book is how beasts and humans might not be as different as we would like to believe. And and in fact, the the um, narrator often doesn't initially realize that the beasts are beasts. Um, many of them are very human-like. Um, many of them assimilate into human society, but there's always some point at which they have to deviate, um, or they reveal their essential beastly nature. Mm. But it was it was about finding that that thing that made them different, that point of difference, as well as the things that made them um, similar and able to relate to the protagonist
0: Mm, yeah and that's um that's i guess that's an evergreen theme for what it's like to live in a society or being part of one you will have to meet people who are i guess everyone you meet is similar you know there's some percent the same as you some percent different but yeah I, i see what you mean there it kind of goes on to our the next question i've got lined up which literally starts um with the sentence the human characters aren't as human as we might first think. Um, so, our, our narr- I'm just gonna—I <laughs> have a long question written out. I'm just gonna read it. Um, the narrator is a young woman, and the rest of the recurring cast are pretty much the men in her life. I think more or less all the secondary characters are are, are the guys that she meets on a daily or regular basis. And everyone, pretty much, uh, turns out to be a mystery unto themselves, not only the narrator, but my feeling is she is maybe, the narrator herself is maybe the biggest mystery of them all in some ways. Um, because, you know, if you're seeing out of someone's eyes, then you can't see the person mm. themselves, in a way. Um, I was kind of reminded a wee bit of the Chili Bean Pace Clan, because as uh, Nikki Harmon uh, reminded me when she was on the show uh, talking about the book. The book isn't told in first person. The narrator is a character but she's sort of present in the story by her absence. She's only mentioned in reference, like I think she's she's uh, ill or mentally unwell at the time where she's recovered. So she's this invisible young woman who's sort of observing, in quote marks, her father's wayward life or at least describing it or recounting it. Um, so again, trying to <laughs> pull a question out of this rambling um, line of thought, a question for both of you, do you think it would be fruitful to start reading the book assuming that everyone is a strange beast? Whether it's your first reading or a rereading, is that a fun or interesting or useful way to read the book? Mm.
1: Should Jer- I think Jeremy should go first to mm. prevent <laughs> me from speaking too much. <laughs>
2: Um, On one level, I think it's a good um, way to read any book, just Mm. to assume things are not what they seem and everyone is some sort of strange beast. Um, But talking about invisible narrators, um, I I think there's something very intriguing about the fact that the protagonist of this book, the main voice that we spend time with, we never find out her name and that's... I I think quite that that's obviously a very conscious choice. Um, And it's something that I think allowed me to identify with her to a perhaps dangerous degree um, as I was translating it. Um, And I, I, I think the process of reading the book, certainly of translating it was you get a kind of Stockholm syndrome with the beasts. Um, mm-hmm. Like with a book of this kind, I think you would expect to come out on the side of the humans, right? Like if, if there's a human tribe and a beastly tribe, you would kind of expect to get to the end and be like, oh, well, I'm human. Right. Um, but but whereas that, that's not at all what happens. And you come out, um, or at least I did, questioning your own humanity and how porous the borders are around what you think of as as normal life
0: totally yeah it only can take a very small change or disturbance to completely flip things upside down I know I've experienced that a few times in my own life oh I've lost my train of thought let me let me think for a second (laughs) Um, I mean
2: we're all strange beasts.
0: exactly we are all strange beasts um yeah I, I I have personal stories i could tell from my life and my families but i won't suffice to say i think you're definitely right um there are all sorts of things about the people in our lives or the people in the city that we'd never find unless we went investigating that would surprise us or th- throw us um, throw us off kilter um yeah the the other thing i was thinking of saying was there's a tv show i really like that has a good example of a narrator you find out because you're taking his point of view, There, you, there's things about him you'll never know until the last minute. And that's the TV show, Mr. Robot. But it's not relevant enough <laughs> to, to this book for me to, to talk about it much depth. Um, I will say when I was reading the book early on, when we were still kind of getting to know everyone, especially narrator, the narrator, I found myself second guessing. I'm like, wait a minute. Have I wrongly assumed that the narrator is specified as a woman? Is her gender unspecified? I don't remember. Um, Then I looked at the blurb and it does say um, she uses the female pronouns for her. And then sure enough, like a few pages later in the book, it's clarified that she's a woman. But it it made me realize, yeah, wait a minute. There's a little bit of kind of clever uh, literary sleight of hand here. We're not being told too much about the narrator, but our attention, or at least my attention, wasn't drawn to that fact. I was so focused on the beasts and all the people, interesting people she's dealing with. I didn't, I obviously, until X number of pages into the book, I wasn't trying to figure out who she was. But that's often, in a lot of books, that's the most interesting question. Who's telling the story? Let's keep things moving. The next question, uh, the setting. Yeah, I, I almost brought up setting when we were touching on the Shanghai Jing, because at least, um, and to my understanding, as well as describing beasts, the Shanghai Jing sort of describes or is mapping out the places where you can find them and they're sort of imaginary places. And that's also, I think there's a little bit of that in the book we're finding out about uh, the city of Yongan. And it seems like there's a lot you could say about it. Um, my feeling was that there's a lot of contradictory things about Yongan um, or am- ambiguous things or resonant things. Um, sometimes I felt for sure it was a stand-in for a real Chinese city. I think maybe because I'd listened to you guys and Yan talk about the book before in other online events I think you said you were living in Chongqing at the time so I was wondering oh is everything just a metaphor for different parts of Chongqing and other times I thought no that seems wrong this is like a magical city it's it's transnational or it's not even on our version of earth um so simple question for both of you um what do you make of Yongan?
1: The city yeah um the, the city I, I was um sort of basing uh, the Yongan, the fictional city Yongan um, in this book was based on the city I lived in back then. It was Chengdu. Oh,
0: Chengdu but sorry. you're not
1: too wrong to say that's Chongqing because those two cities are very like, they're kind of like twin cities mm. and they're very, but they're like um aesthetically they're so different because Chengdu right. was built on this plain and Chongqing is like this very hilly you know, it's kind of built on like multiple mountains and it's it's quite beautiful actually in in that sense because it has it's like san francisco and it has different layers but right yeah this is a deviation but um i i was thinking about and even like um for the previous question we're talking about like the narrator and then and then this one you're talking about like the city i think what i am probably mostly this is me analyzing myself um as a writer and also maybe a person is that, um, I think I'm quite into um, ambiguity. And in a sense, when I, when I have a narrator, I'm always um, invested in this idea of an unreliable narrator. And, or when I have a narrator, I always sort of toy with this idea of this, you know, you have narrative, you have protagonist, but then when the story began, like when the novel began in this sense, and your narrative was only an observer. So she was like a passive, Um, observer and she was narrating the story but then gradually she became more and more um, active and then she became the protagonist it becomes not being told uh, from her point of view not only but also it's about her so then you have this really blurred line um, of you know what she sees and how she's seen by other people or how the story eventually became sort of wrapped around her Um, and I think similarly for the city um and that I was really going for this sort of um, this sense of this dual sense of you know realism versus magical realism is that I do not wanted to create a place or a setting where people would just immediately say, oh this is like pure you know fantasy or science fiction or oh this is pure like realism. I don't know if I had successfully undone it in in this in the case of um, Strange Beasts of China and also even now, like whatever I'm writing, you've never, <laughs> you never know if you've actually um, achieved your goal in your head. Um, mm. But um, I just really wanted to have this blurred line and including, you know, like when Jeremy was saying, so um, so that in essence, I I, I do want you to create something that you could see this is in China or is this in purely like an, an imaginary country? Because nothing was specified, but at the same time, I think you could, you probably could like, Put a lot of like descriptions and things you, you you could drag them down to the ground to say oh this is a that's b but mm. at the same time they're kind of quite slippery and and the same i think goes with um, the identity of this writer so um, jeremy was saying like this i was never named i think for me um or for the the the, the me who wrote this book um, was that I was trying to uh, play this game where people could almost think I is Yan Ge, like because I think the format of the Chinese book was that you open this you have this book and you have this I is like a writer and then towards the end the last bit of it um, I think um, you, you get to have like the afterword and I think for the afterword for a while i was playing with this idea when you begin to read the afterword as a read as a reader you think that afterward was from the actual writer as in yang Ge. but then maybe halfway through you realize oh this afterward was also from um this woman like this narrator this fictional writer in this book so i think i i do try to create this sense of um, ambiguity even with the writer's identity i just one is to it's almost like, is this book is this book written by this woman in this book? <laughs> this is kind of mm. sorry, I'm just being, and uh, you know, it's like I I do not want people to be hundred percent sure if this book was written by me, Yang, and having created this fictional writer who's writing this book, or maybe this book was re- written by this fictional character and and then I was and whose name is Yang? the real writer me was never existed
0: oh my head spinning
1: <laughs> you know because sometimes I, I think you do have um this idea where, like somebody published a book and to say this book was the book this is like quite of an um, old-fashioned thing you know someone would write or publish a book to say this book was the book I discovered and but then in fact this book was written by I right but then yeah. you say this is a discover book written so it's kind of like that so I think I was playing with this sense of ambiguity, this like uncertainty you don't know what is like reality, what is like imaginary world, and both in the sense of the identity of the narrator, the identity of the writer, and then the sort of um whether being real or not of the city, so yeah, sorry, okay, I'm gonna stop <laughs> that's
0: okay, that's a great answer and yeah, I think i it was a thing I was thinking about. Because uh, before I read the book, I uh, attended some of the other online events you did, where you talked about how the episodic structure came from the fact the Chinese edition was serialized. So I was clued into that. To I was clued into how uh, the narrator's submissions to her boss were a little bit like your submissions to your editor, and so on. But mm-hmm. I think even if I hadn't known that, the meta-meta textual stuff that you were talking about would have become more obvious to me as I got through it and I think a lot of readers like in films and movies I think people really like meta stuff it's usually if it's done well it's um it's pretty enjoyable and I enjoyed it in this book and yeah you're you're right I'd forgotten um I'd forgotten just how suppressed I was when I did my English degree way back when I was like 18 19 20 21 how like these some of the first literature you could get in English the author felt you needed some framing to the device to justify why you were reading some person's words um mm-hmm. like how um the novel Dracula is a load of letters and documents and stuff um I think people aren't you know either forget or aren't generally aware just how meta some old literature is and it's now that now that we know what a novel is we don't usually need these um justifications for why we're reading someone's story so yeah it's, it's interesting. It, it occurred to me um, when you mentioned that you were submitting these stories to uh, Qingnian Wenshua Youth Literature, um, that like you said, you were—it's the target readers were like high school kids or maybe college university uh, students. And you said yourself, you're only 21. So you weren't an awful lot older than them. I had some kind of a similar experience um, for a little while when I was a teacher in China. I was what, like 25 years old? And some, t- some of the kids I was teaching were like 17, 18. And I couldn't help but think it wasn't that long ago that I was you guys, that I was fretting about my exams and stuff. Um, so when you were writing, were you thinking about um, your like your audience trying to, like I don't know, get inside their heads or give them something that you would have liked to have received and read at, at their age? Was that on your mind at all?
1: I think for me, it's not really about the age group thing It's probably because obviously I was not like a mainstream person, at least as far as the editor was concerned. You know, he was like, you're too obscure. You're like a weirdo. Just try to be more mainstream, like (laughs) apply, like just try to, you know, appeal to more people. And I wasn't really thinking about, I think, um, but like the, the really nice thing about writing this book was since it, gets published as i write you know so you do get some sort of um not real time but you do get some feedback mm, um, right. as you're going through it and i remember i like so this um this very um this very novel when it was first published like from the magazine on the magazine and it was voted by the magazine's readers that year to be like the most popular like the most liked um story or book or thing <laughs> On, on the magazine that year. So it was like, I'm not saying it's like massively popular because the after all, it's a literary magazine. So, you know, it's not like, but um, mm. but it's really good that you could get that real sense of like people do care about it and they're so involved. And I think back then people were using, um, like 伯客, like a blog. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying, you know, it's like, uh, so, so then they do find me on, on my blog and they would like leave some message, leave some comments. And, and so that was very nice. And that was probably, again, like one of the, the only experience um, in my writing, in my, you know, like the, this many years that you will get like um, the closest to real time feedback from the readers as you were writing through this book. mm it was quite uplifting i think yeah and um, but i think because of that and uh, again like this is quite plot driven this book itself but i'm not saying it's not necessarily like a bad thing obviously but um um but i i do like i do um put a lot of efforts uh, when i was doing this book and um, that just to just to make it very intense.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I almost like I think it almost like kind of like sometimes you allow yourself. I allowed myself to indulge myself into this kind of a, a bad literary taste where so many people just died for no good reason. It's like, you know, it's like in a way everything in this book was like high drama. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I think it makes sense because um it doesn't necessarily make I, I feel bad for defending my own bad taste, but uh, I think it doesn't really uh, feel too jarring um, because it was narrated by this very young person, like the narration protagonist Mm. was this very young and mentally unstable person. So (laughs) I think it's not like very uh, strange to have those like just Mm -hmm. heightened emotions and heightened um, plots and going on all the time. Yeah, so... (laughs)
2: I think that is one place we see a gap between her and you, Yen, yeah, and, and that's in the chapter where we get a long excerpt of the protagonist's writing, because um, mm. she's kind of composing a story in real time. Mm. Um, and, and the story that she's writing is, is I think, recognizably cheesier and, mm. and kind of more intense and more um, emo than the, the book that contains it. Um, So there is this little gap in the um, meta-narrative where we sort of see that she's writing in a slightly different register compared to the sophistication of the the
0: entire work. Yeah, and was it the editor loves that hyper-melodramatic story, but her friends are like, what are you doing? This is trash.
1: Was there a chapter, I think, that actually contains... And a part like this excerpts of her story was mm. it like yeah. sorry I'm like I'm asking you guys yeah, that if, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, <it's> the prime <laughs> beast chapter Ying oh yes yeah yes yeah um so two hang on a minute what was the, I have just two things what was one of them crap uh, forget it I'll just ask about <laughs> the main thing um. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you um you were talking about how you felt that it was appropriate for the um the book to have this kind of slightly melodramatic feeling because the main character and so many of the others are in a sort of a emotionally volatile fragile place in their lives or their state of mind and maybe at, at, at that age you were it was appropriate for the place you were at in your life mm. you know age, age 21 um And I definitely got that reading it. And a thing that I've, I think I've used this term in one or two places in the last episodes. It's just like, you know, when you think of a very particular framework, a way of looking at things, and you get hung up in it, in a while, for a while. And the thing I've kind of been hung up on for a while is thinking about both stories and peoples in terms of like nerve endings, whether the nerve endings are very dulled or like hypersensitive and they do they reduce the signal they pick up or do they multiply it so how muted is a story or how like explosive is it and i was thinking yeah this this uh, if a normal we're getting really stupid here but if a normal nerve ending sensitivity is one and anything below is dulled anything above is hypersensitive then this book's got to be like <laughs> two or three it's um And there was another slightly more gross biological thing I thought of. I don't know why. Maybe it's because so many of the beasts shed their skins. But you know how human beings, we have something like 11 layers of skin. And you're always shedding your skin or whatever.
1: I don't know this.
0: (laughs) Oh. Well, it might not be eleven, but it's some number like that. Um, oh, no. Check your check your medical textbooks to verify what I'm saying. <laughs> but if you lose, if some of your first layer comes off, the layer beneath is actually really smooth and nice. But you're not in any physical danger because you know you're only because it's not your skin's not been punctured. It's just the very outer layer that. And sorry, this is really gross, but I was just thinking, it's almost as if everything in the character has this softer, more vulnerable but somehow like more beautiful outer coating than, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that, but I kept, it kept popping into my head for some reason.
1: I, I think to summarise what she just beautifully um put out, it was just everybody in, in this book was just a bit snowflake, that was what it is, because <laughs> uh, I think that's something, well, I do think that's something you typically get when you're at a very young age. You really kind of um, react mm-hmm. to this world, really. You know, your reaction was so strong. It was unfiltered, and, and you're just like in a very vulnerable yeah. space. And you're just, you know, you're so easy to fall into love. You're so easy to be filled with despair. Like everything was just, yeah. I think it, it definitely is um, this book definitely is from a very young place, like not just age. Surely I think lots of um, traits of this book, lots of um, qualities were determined by, written by a very young person and showing um like the characters were mostly um, like very young. I think I was reading it, like I read Jeremy's translation and I was like uh, reconfigurating on all the characters. And I thought, I knew, like in my head, I realized that. So some of the characters, when I wrote them, I thought, oh, "Okay, this was the old person," but then that person probably was like in the early 30s. <laughs> yeah, and then I did, you realize this absurd relativity, <laughs> like how you see other people. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh huh. I remember when I was five, I would see 12-year-olds and I'd be like, "Whoa, scary British giants!" But now I see a 12-year-old and I'm like, "Oh, a little, a little stick person." It's, it's all it's all relative um was, there was a thing that popped into my head when i was 18 i thought i'd be very clever and take all the little um short stories i'd written and try and make something i could give away to my friends i made it into a pdf and i named it after a song lyric uh, by a band called incubus that i really liked as a teenager and there's a line uh it's the start of, it's the, start of the first verse of a song called pardon me And the first three lines, I've just looked up, that's what the typing noises were. Uh, A decade ago, I never thought I would be at 23 on the verge of spontaneous combustion, woe is me. And I kind of, yeah, I feel like some of the car. I think some of, does one of the beasts actually kind of explode? Maybe not literally, but I feel like there's figuratively, there's a lot of kind of people bursting into flames or
2: flourishing into flames.
0: Yeah, this book
1: was definitely my book, like among all my books, this one was the one that has the most casualty. I guess <laughs> I was reading it. I was like, how can all those people <laughs> just die? Like, seriously? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I don't know if you feel this way, um, Angus, because um, and you were mentioning say the um, the Chilebean Pace clan, because those two books are like the most contrasting books of mine. And and I think mm. I have got this a lot um from um like readers in China or critics to say they just couldn't believe those two books were from the same person. Um I feel slightly embarrassed by it and um, by this comment. Um I don't know where I'm getting. Why am I interviewing you? Sorry. No,
0: <laughs> no you can't. I like it when I get questions <laughs> I asked back in good um no i was thinking that too um i was thinking yeah these are two very different books i guess you know it's like um for for any other um well not for any other author but for an author who's not an author in translation I could just go look up all their other books on Wikipedia or Amazon and I could see if there was some common thread connecting the two so okay for for example uh, an author who's I think the first two books I read by Cormac McCarthy were a very early one by him Outer Dark and then The Road and there are a lot of similarities in the story but the prose style couldn't be more different one is really sparse and one is like biblical and crazy and gothic. And I would have, reading those two books, I'd be like, I'd be thinking, well, one's by the young guy, one's by the old guy. There's probably a whole thing in the middle. um There's a chronology. I could look it up and verify it and get these books. But with an author like yourself, who's got quite a lot of books uh, in the original Chinese, but just these two and White Horse, I think, in translation, I just kind of work on the assumption I'm missing part of the <laughs> picture. And until I, take a year out and learn amazing chinese i will just have to you know get you on the podcast and interview you and ask but is there is so the question i guess i would ask is is there some middle ground in your other works that joins up uh woman jia actually being pace clan and this book or are they really just kind of uh irreducible unique beasts
1: um i was thinking about um like um this book because this morning because we, we were on supposed to do this interview I was like preparing myself thinking about is there anything I want to say about this book and one thing I do um like it it did occur to me that the style of this book maybe Jeremy can either verify or to (laughs) not agree with this uh is that um I think the the sentences like the style um in this book were closer to classic Chinese language because I think that was uh, when I wrote this book I was at the point so I just I was in I was in my sophomore year right in the university and and I think before I actually went to the university m- mostly my literary influence um, was classic Chinese because I grew up in a family where everybody um was like a massive classic Chinese fan. And then we'd recite um, classic poetry at dinner table. And my granddad would give me this book in Chinese. It's called Gu Wen So it's like a thick anthology of like classic Chinese essays. And and he would force me to recite all of them, which I did not manage to do. But, but that was sort of where I came from. It's like, I was really immersed in this classic literature world, and I didn't read much foreign literature um, at all until I went to the university, and everybody was like, even they talk about say people like William Faulkner. I was like, who's that? And I felt I, I, at that point I felt enormously, mm-hmm. you know, kind of um, ashamed of myself for lacking that knowledge. But I think, and and then um, obviously I made a conscious choice where I began to read um, like my peers in the university more foreign like an American or or Latin American, you know, like whatever that's popular at that point. Lots of translation um into mm. China, like so foreign literature from a Chinese point of view, surely. And then contemporary Chinese literature. I think, I think then that influenced my style, maybe to the point where we had things like women's yeah, where sentences have become um noticeably much longer and come Um, complicated and complex, Uh, whereas I think on Yishouzhi, Strange Beasts of China, I think the way it was composed, like even on a sentence level, although I was making a conscious choice to make it more accessible, but I think that was definitely um, much more influenced by classic Chinese. So I I feel like my wording, you know, the way I I talk, I, I wrote was very different. So this was my interpretation. Yeah. I don't
2: know if Jeremy feels that or. Yeah, no, I definitely picked up on that and, and that fed into the translation. Um, for a lot of it, particularly when um, the beasts are being described, the language goes into something very classical um, to the point that I was having to look up classical references to understand what was actually going on. Um, and there were a couple of places where I had to ask and I just, do not get this, could you tell me what it is? And and that's why for the translation, I gravitated towards um, a much more classical or classical seeming register. Um, So even Mm. in the names of the beasts Mm. which we've touched on and which are in many ways the key to their personalities, um, it it had to be things like joyous beasts rather than joyful beasts, which would probably be a more um, common way of saying it. Um, it, it mm-hmm. I think, had to feel like something that could have come from an ancient bestiary, partly because mm-hmm. that the lineage of where the book was, and partly because I think that is a gap between um, how the protagonist wants to come across and how she actually is. So when she's actually talking, her actual reported dialogue is often quite blunt, um, mm-hmm. slightly inarticulate. She can't quite put her feelings into words But when she's describing the beasts, she goes into this very classical register um, as if she's trying to either because she's trying to prove herself in some way, perhaps to the professor who, you know, is, is a big influence in her life. Or perhaps because a lot of these beasts ultimately have ancient lineages and she's kind of tapping into that and you can't help but go into the, the history of, of bestiaries you can't help but tap into that vocabulary
0: when you start discussing them mm. Mm. yeah I, that's perfect because i was going to throw the question and say jeremy what could you say about the classic classical chinese and bringing it into english but that's exactly what you did <laughs> perfect and I, I i might come back to asking you about the vocabulary later but that's a good uh, a good seed to plant in the, gr- the ground for now. So, I already indulged myself a minute ago asking about a-, a band I really liked when I was a teenager, or bringing up a band I really liked when I was a teenager, Incubus. But now I'm going to bring up a book. I still, if someone asks me what my favorite book is, I still say it's this book. I think it's just because I've fixed on it and it's an easy answer, but to some extent it's true. It's a book I really love. It's called I'm the Messenger, it's uh, by Marcus Suzak. And I kept thinking of it as as I was reading Strange Beasts of China. And the reason for that is it's got the whimsy existential angst, the comedy, an episodic structure. It's got a little bit of a noir or certainly detective and mystery uh, element. And the people, the thing, sorry, this thing being investigated is other people in the society around you. And later, the people closest to you. And then later, turning inward um, without spoiling anything. Uh, It gets pretty meta. It's kind of a little bit meta all the way through, but just like Strange Beasts of China, we get more meta as we go on. Um, And if there's one thing I could try and say I'm the Messenger's about, it's about breaking out of a state of apathy to find, and now I'm going to use very pretentious words, the beautiful, (laughs) painful truth of being alive and being in a society of other heartbroken souls. So listeners, you can probably hear I'm reading this off paper. Uh, I kept thinking of, yeah, like I said, I kept thinking of I'm the messenger. So again, trying to boil down this big train of thought into a question, what human truths should we be on the lookout, or what truths, maybe human is a stupid word to use here, what truths should we be on the lookout for in Strange Beasts of China? And I'm wondering especially about like general human existential truths, uh, that you are evergreen versus ones that are particular to particular kinds of people or particular areas or societies is yeah what truths are is the book trying to tunnel down into and bring up for the reader or help the reader discover or think about
2: i mean i don't know about be on the lookout for because i feel like while this book is full of, of human and beastly truths um their best experience when they kind of creep up on you mm. Mm. What what really struck me about the book um, and I suppose this is a fundamental truth of life is how unstable everything is just as you think you know where you are um, both we as readers and the protagonists are constantly having the ground cut out from under us Um, Mm. and it's this thing about you're constantly learning new things about the world that destabilize your understanding of, of how it works. And uh, you know you, as, as you move through the world um, your perception of, of your place in it and and how how it all falls in balance is, is constantly shifting as is the world itself So I suppose if I had to reduce that to something
0: it, it would be you don't get too comfortable <laughs> yeah I think I think that's very true um yeah and to ask you something more specific, do you think strange beast of china says is capturing anything particular from uh not just the time of your life it was written in but the time it was written in um i'm thinking about this mm. for a few reasons uh, one it's really it's just selfish um so the time i lived in china um mm. granted it wasn't anywhere near Chengdu, it was last decade <laughs> it was the 2010s um and just the latter half of them really um so i read about um china china in the first decade of the 20th century uh, saw pictures and stuff from it and was kind of led to understand mm. it was a little bit more uh less strict than it is now um and i was thinking as i was reading the book like hmm there's a few mentions to like a faceless often kind of oppressive or uncaring mm. or not particularly pleasant government i don't think it ever says it's a one-party state but I was just thinking, oh, could this could this book be published um, in today's China um, just for maybe that reason alone? Um, but probably the main question I'd say is how much, to what extent are we getting a snapshot of a particular time rather, as well as a particular time in a person's life? Is it, is it there at all?
1: Yeah, I, I was actually um, thinking about the same, like exact the same um, this morning when I was um, thinking about, um, this book, um, whether or not, it, this book could be, well, actually like I just had a sort of a, a latest version. So it, it get, it had like a new edition. I think it was maybe two, three years ago. Um, yeah, I was wondering if this will be published, will be able to get published now. Um, uh, but, mm. but, um, but, but one thing, um, that I feel it's, it's funny because this book, mostly um people consider it like magical realism or some would say it's just pure fantasy and and then or could be because of that um assumption so people are not really looking at it the way they would examine as quote-unquote like social realistic fiction because they think oh this is pure you know like um made up um like in the made-up world and so i think that definitely helped it because nobody was trying to <laughs> look into this gibberish uh, story from a child, I think, especially back then when this book came out. But then, like, when I look back into this book, when I reread it now, I was really struck by how political um, this book was, like how much it talked about the, the the government or this, like, higher power or this, you know, this how the rulers or manipulating, controlling its people. And this was like touched upon repeatedly in this book which was really unusual, I think. And then I I couldn't remember uh, why I did it. I suppose, again, it could be like a very young person thing, isn't it? And it could just be, again, I was saying uh, I was living in this particular apartment with a bunch of um, college um, graduate students, uh, mostly our students, I think those Base. You know, it could be part of the bigger discourse I was living in, in the sense college students back then were very much engaged politically in terms of examining and understanding how a politic, like a Chinese politic system works, how maybe people were depraved of the rights to make certain choices and how we were manipulated into believing that we had choices or, yeah, I was, I was just thinking like, well, this is me really guessing now. Cause I obviously couldn't remember. Um, But it was, it's, it's definitely was like a reflection of the, would you say that it's, it's the atmosphere of the quasi-intellectual circle because <laughs> it's like po- a bunch of co- college yeah. postgraduates. so I'm not saying that's like very serious but like you know that circle I was living in and and it's like the atmosphere back then yeah I don't know what that atmosphere would be like now obviously yeah mm.
0: I'd much rather read about quasi-intellectuals than really (laughs) fully fledged intellectuals. much more interesting people. I think that's, that's answered my question, really. Although there is a second part to the question. So as well as being a snapshot of the past, um, this came up on your, when you um, were in, appropriately, the uh, London Chinese sci-fi book club's Zoom meeting, they were asking you, or you guys were talking about, how much the book kind of predicted the future? Um, there's one chapter in particular where a p- pandemic uh, spreads. I think it spreads from Thailand into wherever Yongan is. Um, yes, yeah, so
1: like a non-specific, non-specified, um, like tropical city. Right. Is it in the south? Yeah, yeah. tropical um, country. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think it's Southeast. Yeah, 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 Somewhere in Southeast Asia. But yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I'd so I'd been primed to expect oh, there's going to be a chapter that feels eerily similar to today because of a pandemic. Um, But I just kind of thought, well, that's that's funny, isn't it? But then I read it and I was like, oh, damn, this is this is weird reading this, because although some of it, some of it maybe doesn't relate to the situation. I mean, so much of it does. I guess I'm not going to ask you if you think books can predict the future. The The question, more interesting question might be, what do we make of it when it feels like they do?
1: I I was thinking about that, actually, it's, um, this was in chapter seven, I think, and then all those people, they went to this sort of southern country, and then there was this virus going on. The virus itself is violence, so there was a riot there in the country, and then people was considered, people who traveled there now returning to Yongan, was considered being in contact with this virus of violence and then they were all stranded in the airport and they wouldn't, they were not allowed to enter the city so they don't contaminate other people with this virus of violence. And then in the end, all the people, all the citizens in the city voted to um, pretty much just kill all of those um, travelers who had been to this, this Southern country. And I was reading that and, you know, cause now obviously this is with COVID and, and um, I I don't think people are would I don't think it would be very easy for people who like oversee Chinese people to go back to China now, precisely for the mm. in the sense like um the citizens or your own countrymen voted to eliminate you, isn't it? It's not like they wanted to kill us, <laughs> they wanted to kill people who are not, but they pretty much just want to get rid of you, to to um eradicate you. Um and, and, and I would think, and I know, I, I feel really kind of um, chilling when I read that. And then I thought, how did this happen? Why, why, why? And, um, but, but then I, I thought the reason, like, I thought it was pretty much, you know, when I was writing that, it's like this person, this very young person who's quite, who has a very dark worldview in which she believes nobody is good. There is no real goodness in this world, in humanity. So I think in this sense, this person, um, this narrator, and also that me who were writing this book was um anticipating was sort of um developing all the plots, everything based on the worst assumption mm. of humanity, of like of a government, of a sit of of all the citizens, of you know, I think it's it's really from a very dark place and both for the narrator. Um, and also for the implied author who wrote this book. It was, I think it was from this very dark place where, where she and I back then really just think about everything for the worst case scenario, for the darkest, the most inhumane reaction towards everything. But then sadly, some of it really was verified and you can see it's really like the worst in this was then sort of um made up in that story. But now, because we were put in this very extreme scenario, which literally just brings out the worst aspects in us in this humans, isn't it? So, so it's kind of like this very chilling kind of surreal <laughs> coincidence,
2: yeah. Well, I also wonder, Yan. Um... Yeah. Uh, you would have been writing this, I think, around the time of or soon after the SARS epidemic. Um,
1: oh, yeah. Was it? Because hmm. I totally forgot SARS. So when was SARS?
0: I think it was around then. Yeah. Um, let was... me
1: see. When was... Oh, yes. Ha ha. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> yes that's right so it's uh, i was just googling it so it's 2022 to 2024 and i wrote this at 2020 sorry it's 2002 to 2004 and i wrote this book at 2005 so yeah ah problem solved thank you
0: <laughs> i remember um i think it was around that turn of the millennium there was a very 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 like diet uh panic like that when um foot and mouth disease uh, was spreading i think it was only able i don't know if it was able to hurt humans but as a small kid i remember having to dip my feet in disinfectant before going into shops in rural areas and stuff like that and i know my parents were a bit shaken i think it was maybe because they spent their lives thinking maybe not my grandparents who'd lived through um the home front of world war 2 but um generations after that mine and my parents included in a country like the uk we just think oh you know things like that don't happen here there aren't going to be any big ruptures or disruptions but what you were saying about worst case scenarios resonates with me today because i don't know from 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 my my way of being ready for the the future is going to just be assuming stuff crazy disruptions and ruptures are going to keep happening and i'm just going to have to um what's the word, muddle through it. The idea that it can't happen here seems to be an idea past its expiration date. Mm. So I th- I'm i sure a lot of the listeners, wherever they are in the world, maybe feel the same. Mm. It's come up on the show a few times. Um, but without getting too miserable, um, let's keep going. Uh, Jeremy, it is your time to shine? Because I'm going to ask some questions about translating the book. Although this first question could be for both of you. Um, so the book And its Chinese title, as far as I'm aware, um, don't specify China or anywhere in China as the setting, but the title of the English Addiction does seem to, because it's Strange Beasts of China, it's not Strange Beasts of Yongan. Um, Is there much we can say about the two's titles, um, either in general or in relation to the setting? I mean, the the honest answer for me is that the title
2: in English just clicked into face. It just felt right. Um, and often there is a protracted discussion with the publisher about what the English title should be and it does often become quite different um, from the Chinese title because of different conventions in, in both um, areas and also the, the perception that the title is really important in selling the book Absolutely. Um, but in this case um, Tilted Axis accepted the title um, without further discussion um, so we didn't get into it I think a more literal translation of the title would have been something like a compendium of strange beasts which which would have felt too archaic to me Mm. Um, that there is a classical tone to the book but I don't think we ever wanted to get into the area where it felt archaic where it felt like not connected to the present day Mm. yeah Um, and and me strange beasts kind of navigated that distance so it felt a little out of time but also not
0: something completely removed from the present right uh yeah and is there anything you want to say
1: um i quite like the english title actually yeah and then the chinese title obviously it's um it's like a ju like Yi shou zhi zhi, is like what jeremy was saying it's this very sort of an ancient like a classic and is that a genre really is like in, in Chinese mm. and literature. And so, yeah, so it was... Um, this is again, one of my not very popular idea of me being an obscure writer. But then incidentally, I think I'd, I might have mentioned this to Jeremy, it's like Yi shou zhi," the pronunciation of those three characters and um, sound like actually "e show like easy to sell. <laughs> so, <laughs> so people have um, asked me actually and um, did you name the book this way just to help this book will sell more because you're literally naming it in this with the same pronunciation to um you know the book that sells very easily <laughs>
0: um I've flicked open to my uh, copyright page that has the the Chinese title so not because I know this character but it's just visual recognition of the mm-hmm. character is That one in the mm. original Chinese title of Pu Songling's uh collections is that when you
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. so like that's the same. So, is it's really like a genre, it's right. like I don't I can't find I, I, I'm not like erudite enough to know immediately what's equivalent, yes.
0: Yeah, so. Yes, um, if if there's a category for that in English like, it's maybe just like strange tales I, I think that's how I've heard these like kind of stories from n- not just China but the kind of Japanese ghost stories as well I think they usually just get called strange tales or ghost stories but yeah because is better. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, it's, it's kind of like um, a non-official history right. it's sort of like a, the recording so it's like a historical recording but it's not it's not written by you know the official historian it's not so it's kind of—I don't know, actually. I—I might be totally wrong.
2: Okay, I just. Stop.
0: Um, sometimes I wish that there was—I had a twin who studied like Chinese studies instead of English lit, and he could come on the podcast and help me out with this stuff. But it's, it's just. Well, me. I, I
1: I did I, I did study Chinese. You know that like I did study Chinese literature as an undergraduate, and so it's for but it's like the time when I wrote this book, we were probably doing like cla- full on classic Chinese. During which time period, I would be required to answer all the que- if I were doing an exam, all the questions had to be answered in classic oh, Chinese and no. uh, with only traditional Chinese characters. So that was, <laughs> so was, you know, I'm supposed to still have that training, but obviously I've lost it. So. Mm
0: do you mind do you guys mind if i uh restart the meeting again the timer is hitting five minutes i'm starting to starting to get antsy (laughs) okay
1: i almost want to keep it running to see how you snap
0: (laughs) i'll start asking questions really fast um start drinking (laughs) extra coffees okay um right here we go okay in a minute So um, listeners, a, a disclaimer here. Uh, I did a little bit of a goof on our initial interview. Um, I had to kind of restart Zoom a couple of times because it decided to impose that 40 minute timer countdown. And on our last little 40 minute session, right at the end of it, I realized I hadn't hit record. So from here on, what you're listening to is a, a take two. So if, if we sound uncannily precise in what we're saying, it's because we're kind of having a deja vu or it's our second rehearsal. Jeremy, here is a question for you um, about translating the book. Um, there's quite a lot of stuff I could have asked, um, but I thought this was the question I most wanted to ask. It's a little bit of a silly question. And it's just, as, as I was reading, I felt that as well as being like a very smooth translation and as well as having having just like on a very technical level, good word choice flowing nicely and so on, there were some quite unusual words which kind of stood out. It's the sort of words where you would, you might not have heard of it, or if you have heard of it, you just don't tend to see it very often. So when you hit upon it, it stands out. Um, When I went flicking through the book, the only example I could, I was able to stumble across was fecund, um, but I know there was more. So I just wanted to ask, was there anything particular that informed your choices for these more obscure words?
2: I guess to me, they they don't feel obscure. Um, Maybe a little less common but that was me responding to the, um, what I felt was the exuberance and precociousness of the original. Um, Jens' novel just felt full of color and life and it pushed me to reach for quite often not the first word that comes to mind, but the second or third word, something a little unexpected, something with a bit more um, color or resonance to it because um, that that felt truer to the original. And I, I think, mm. I, I say not obscure, because they're all words that the reader would probably know the meaning of. Um, so it shouldn't send people to dictionaries. Um, but they were also words that I hope give that pleasurable sense of, huh, it's been a while since I've seen that one in a sentence. Right. I think that's that's the slightly uncanny territory that that really um seemed to fit this novel
0: right you you've just expressed what I was stumbling around there words that sort of sit just on the right threshold of your like ability to recall or recognize them and I think you're right it does create a sort of a pleasurable um effect because. So it's a book that we've already said a lot of things about, um, but one thing I probably can't restate enough is it's like a pleasure to read. Okay, our next set of questions are, are fun questions. Um, we've had quite a serious chat so far. We've, we've gone fairly deep. Now we're going to go back into lighter stuff. So uh, Yen and Jeremy, um, you guys maybe know, well, I guess you do know, because we're on our second take, that um, on every episode of the show, we do a sort of a a word of the day, a Chinese word of the day. And handily, in the case of Strange Beasts of China, um, the publisher, Tilted Axis actually picked a word. Um, they, I guess they do this for, for all their books. They'll find an uh, interesting word from the uh, original language of the text, and then they'll give its definition. Um, so here we have the Chinese character, its pinyin, and then the English, and that character is Shou uh, for beast. So I'll just read the definition they've given for it, um, which is Uh, show was originally used to describe the act of hunting the meaning of the word shifted over time to the object of the hunt the prey more than a neutral word for animal show denotes the absence of humanity and carries the connotations of savagery and wildness so it's really quite a perfect choice i'm just wondering if we can top it do you guys have uh well i know you do because we did this last time what other word could we um add to that one for a word of the day
2: well, as we said before, um, the original Chinese title of the book is Yi shou zhi. Um We chose Shou for the Tilted Axis um, publication, but today we could look at the first word of the title "E," which means strange, unusual, um, separate, but also has a connotation of, of change or transformation. Um, And that that seems quite appropriate um, for, again, that word uncanny, um, that space that is slightly adjacent to our world, that that feels like a really fertile ground for exploration, um, where we're slightly outside of ourselves and seeing ourselves a little bit... um, from a different angle. The way when you catch a glimpse of yourself in a mirror when you're not expecting it, it takes a second for your brain to register, oh, that's me. And I think that's what this book does. It gives us a glimpse of humanity, but defamiliarized, looking strange,
1: yeah, I was just about to say as I, I mentioned last time and I I second that we need to, we should choose E to be like our character of the day because that also is Jeremy's name like in Chinese. So and and I think all the explanations were he really beautifully put out there like how this idea of E really represents so many different things and well Actually, this notion of it, I mean, you could interpret it into uh, in different ways. And all of those um, such like the way Jeremy um, just put it, like everything out there, like you glimpse this image in the mirror and didn't realize and that was you for a minute. I almost feel we needed to invent like mm. this is such a common phenomenon, yet we don't really have like a fixed word for it. So I almost feel this is we need to look for like through different languages to see if you know, possibly in, I don't know, Icelandic language, there would be like a word for this really kind of a, such a chilling and yet, you know, like recurring re, an image and um, sensation in our life. I thought, and also, yeah, that is a perfect metaphor, an image for what strange beasts of China stand for. It is to show us ourselves in the image of the others. But what really we're talking about is ourselves. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I I really like what Jeremy said. Everything he just said there.
0: Hmm. You've just reminded me, Jeremy, there's a room in my granny's house where there's a mirror on one wall and on the opposite wall, there's a mirror. And if you stand in the middle and kind of lean yourself at the right angle, you can see yourself reflected infinitely yeah so I remember when I was young I had a I I would go to that room a lot and create that effect and then you know I've sought it out since and anytime you have one of those mirrors that has the kind of flaps on either side and you can manipulate them to create you know you can try and see your head from all the different angles and I find there is like a weird way where you can turn that fleeting glimpse of yourself from an angle you've never seen and you can freeze it and it is one yeah it's one of the strangest strange strangest um most clearly recognizable and replicable encounters with the uncanny I can think of having had is not just having that fleeting glimpse, but seeing either thousands of iterations of yourself or yourself from um, an angle you wouldn't have expected. And I guess both of those kind of describe strange beasts of China, like you were saying. Um, Speaking of uncanny, I remember in our (laughs) our first uh, go at this this part of the interview i did a call back to um nominative determinism um i was i asked you jeremy if the yi in your name had proven true at all for you
2: well my surname tiang um, is Cheng in mandarin which can mean journey so you could translate my name Cheng yi as strange journey um which is a pretty apt description of my life so (laughs) yes perhaps (laughs) Um, although that's really a pen name so in a way that's something I chose for myself
0: I remember at this point in the chat I tried to make some um clever comment about my um the origins of my name but the thing is there there's nothing interesting to say there so forget it (laughs) (laughs) um let's go on to the next question it's the it's the other kind of really silly question I do for this show and it's um about if the book was a drink um the drink that is burned into my memory from reading the book the most is the all the beer that the characters drink in the dolphin bar which was my favorite setting in the book um trying to visualize it I was visualizing it either as a kind of a young hip person's bar or a china like a chinese student bar which is like a at least in my experience was a very like you could if you, as soon as you see it, you know what it is. Like it will have cheap drinks, it'll have mm-hmm. dice on the tables. um So I had a, a, a kind of a flicking between one picture and the other of what the dolphin bar was and what people were drinking. All that aside, a uh, question for both of you. If Strange Beasts of Tri- China was a drink, what kind of drink do you think it would be? And you're allowed uh, hot drinks, cold drinks, soft drinks, alcoholic drinks, uh, whatever you like. I remember, Jeremy, you had an answer involving a particular style of cocktail i forget if you had one yan
2: well th- this is in itself quite an uncanny experience that we're kind of repeating <laughs> a conversation from a few days ago that we all sort of remember um at, yes. at the weekend or did i already say this this time around um, uh-huh. but yeah i do remember that um the drinks I most associated with this book were the drinks that I had when I first discovered drinking. Um, and I think like a lot of people, um, I got overexcited and really into um, those types of cocktails that really have one too many ingredients and come in lurid colors and, and have um, to- overlong names and come with accessories um, like bendy straws. Um, mm. and, and that that, I think feels like the book. It, it's kind of an exuberance and, and abundance of, of imagination and ideas. Um, and you
0: keep hitting new patches of flavor. Mm. Um, what you said about the uncanny experience, it's it's weird for me. I was thinking, oh, I've done this before all the words are going to flow off my tongue. But um, you guys heard me stumble like pretty early on. I just, my train of thought completely abandoned me. The listeners won't hear that because I will have edited it out. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and I forgot, did, do you have a, a a special drink that you'd associate with? Yeah,
1: I, I cannot believe you forgot it because I brought up that and you're oh, like, no. I have to try it. And it's, uh, I wasn't, uh, I was oh, saying I last now. time. Yes, yes. Yeah, so it's not really about like, the atmosphere of this book per se, but it, it is like a popular drink. I was mentioning, like I was um, living in the student apartment and all the people, the graduates and um, who lived there. And this sort of really cheap cocktail, it's not really a cocktail, was very popular among like the college graduates. And and then and then I said in Chinese, it's called Xiao um, you so roughly translated is like a young male person it's kind of actually it's like a, a a waiter in like in in classic Chinese so it's like this young man is driving the, a, a kettle um, which is a mixture of a red bull and our so it's like this very strong baijiu like Chinese liquor if I remember correctly it would be kind of like 52 percent of alcohol Mm -hmm. and that mixed with um red bull (laughs) and both are like quite you know quite inexpensive sort of um Mm -hmm. really like affordable by students that that type of drink i i remember we used to drink that a lot sort of you know kind of intermittently drinking that and with beer and which often caused quite disastrous um outcome (laughs) yeah so that was the thing i was mentioning and it's just um i don't i haven't I don't, yeah, it wasn't for this particular conversation. I don't think I would have remembered it because I don't think I've tried. The last time I drank that was probably at least, yeah, 10, 12, maybe probably 14, 15 years ago.
0: Yeah, I feel quite ashamed of myself for, for not remembering that. But I remember now on our first, <laughs> listeners should know, uh, on our first uh, attempt at recording when uh, Jan was telling us that story, I was like, I was reacting with uh, shock and horror, but also some some awe. Um, and, and I guess Baijiu's not impossible to come by in the UK. That's a drink I could probably recreate for myself, although I don't know if I would want to.
1: Yeah, it's like... um. Caffeine and alcohol, isn't it? It's not like... I don't know what's in Red Bull, actually, but it seems it's...
0: A lot of sugar, I think, as well as caffeine.
1: Oh, okay. so Wow, that's... Or
0: syrup or something. There was actually a not completely different uh, drink that was really popular when I was starting at university, um, the Mm. Jägermeister mixed with Red Bull. And I was really not... I wasn't that kind of a party kid, but for some reason... I think it was my dad one of my parents when I went off to university leaving home for the first time kitted me out with some red bull and a bottle of Jägermeister but once I finished that bottle I never bought another one once was enough
1: <laughs> and like this is not surprising the drinks all the uh, university students came up with it's quite it's almost like um, a universal language across different countries and coaches. for sure
0: yeah um I, if if the listeners can bear me giving another um early early drinking days anecdote uh, what Jeremy was saying about <laughs> when you start drinking uh, this one is it's quite firm in my memory because it's an embarrassing or it, it's a story that I feel embarrassed about so I started drinking properly I was hanging out with uh, two girls who were um What's the word? I was quite a well-behaved teenager. They were slightly more edgy and they introduced me to this, uh, like a cheap, a cheap, uh, very sweet cider, uh, popular with kids when they start drinking in the UK and also with um, tramps and alcoholics. Um, And we would put like diluting juice, so very sweet, sugary, fruity stuff into it to flavor it, blackcurrant flavor. And I remember I had like one pint sized glass and got could feel it was affecting me really heavily and i thought oh no i can't even drink one pint i'm useless and then realize months later it was something like eight percent strength um so yeah I, i it's hard to relate that to strange beasts of china except there's there's something about being young and naive and getting into alcohol for the first time
1: yeah, I mean, well, I I don't know if I should further like prolong this question, but I kind of feel the most dangerous one is that those when you are drinking it, you don't realize how alcoholic it mm. is. It tastes like Coca-Cola or just just something purely harmless. And I think in that sense, it's like um, it's it's. It's it's like the strange beast of trying the book, and it, it sort of lures you in quite harmlessly. And maybe after finishing two pints, you thought it was just pure like Coca Cola, and then you were like, sudden all of a sudden, just suddenly just knocked out by it. I think there are drink I re- I can't remember the names, but there are a few times in my life when I got very drunk, it was all because of that type of drink. Like you didn't realize mm. how much alcohol was in it, and yeah. So I kind of feel that is. More like the experience of, or the, the the experience that I hope the reader would get from reading Strange Piece of China is that you don't realize, but you're so drunk, and then suddenly you realize, and you couldn't get up.
2: <laughs> I mean, that's definitely the effect it had on me because it is a fun, fantastical book, and you're kind of just cruising along, enjoying it, um, and very unprepared for the emotional whammy and the existential questions it raises
1: Mm.
0: absolutely Mm. um i'll end uh, this alcohol line of conversation by saying i think spirits should not taste good spirits should be hard to drink not easy um because if they taste too good then yeah you end up in trouble last silly question um which beast in this book do each of you think you would be or are most like um anyone who wants to go first can go first I guess I know what you're both going to say but I'll be interested to see if you're going to say yeah. <laughs> exactly the same word for word
1: we're like we're so strict because you know we could we could have taken a total different strategy which is to not acknowledge that we have recorded this before and then we just pretend mm. you know this was the first recording whereas we've acknowledged it up front and then every bit when we move forward we rec we kind of it's funny like we're we're showing this as a duplicate but it's funny because then the the original was lost so nobody would be able to see or hear the original but then we were like so eager to claim we're only like we're only doing this like a fake layer like a second layer to sort of copying the to copy the original and we just make that claim repeatedly mm. it's kind of um okay I'm just <laughs> I'll, I'll... I'll say the beast, uh, the, the kind of beast I want to be, because this is the set um, answer for me, and it's a flourishing beast, and I really like that because, uh, I think I definitely have mentioned this in in other interviews and events, and um, because I wrote this type of beasts and thinking about my mom uh, who had just passed away, so it's a it's this group of um sort of like a female beast like women who lives in this nunnery and and they have this very like intimate sense of community and looking after each other. So it's like a, a matriarchy society where people were just like loving and supporting each other. And it's a, it's a little bit Zen in a sense all of those beasts having the shape of human or just wanted to be And um, eventually I think the perfect form for them for their lives would just be becoming woods. So I thought that was something that spoke very um, deeply to me Um, especially when I was writing it so yeah
0: yeah Um, I remember at one of those other events you did the one with the London Chinese sci-fi group uh, Angela, Angela Chan who was interviewing you I think I recall she said she really appreciated Mm. the parts of the book where we met beasts who have some kind of as well as being different as individuals they have a sort of different or they have some kind of parallel or alternate society or social structure so if it's all-female or matriarchal or outside gender society's gender norms and stuff and where she said she really liked that and i think yeah it, it's in the book it's very it's done with a lot of nuance and it's interesting i guess because they're beasts they're not there's nothing you can really predict about how their society is going to be because yeah it's, yeah. it's literature it's showing you things from that unfamiliar angle so yeah i i, I like those parts too um jeremy what What's, uh, what, what's your answer this time around?
2: Um, I think I said something similar last time, um, which is that the through the book, um, which is set up like a bestiary, a different beast in each chapter, as the protagonist gets to know each different beast and writes about it, a kind of Stockholm syndrome takes place where she always starts to side with the beasts um, against humankind and sees them as less other and more like herself. Um, and I, I felt a similar process as I was translating the book um, where I, I both um, got very felt very close to the protagonist but also to each individual beast, which I think is by design because they do reflect different aspects of humanity just taken one step too far mm. um so i think on different days or even at different times of the day i am many of these beasts one after another
0: well it's a, it's, it's a very good answer and you've uh, you put it even better than you did last time um so thanks <laughs> i i actually wanted to do another callback to something you said in the ones in chinese sci-fi group interview Yan. um Maybe 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 there's maybe the, I'm asking an overly direct question here, asking you for some kind of literal interpretation. But I remember you said you dis, you wanted to write about um, like sort of marginalized or outsider people in society, maybe in Chengdu mm. itself, I'm not sure. But you thought the more interesting literary thing to do is to use beasts as a sort of a metaphor. Um, I know that's a very sort of brute way of framing the question, but um, I'm going to do it are any of the beasts kind of very directly inspired by any particular groups or people or subcultures or is it all sort of taking from lots of different sources and combining in a creative way mm. or would you just rather not I, tell the readers? I,
1: no 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 I mean um, I'm just trying to recall and um, again I think I, I mentioned it to you um, that I don't quite remember like lots of details Mm. when I was working on this book but I remember um, so around the time when I was at least thinking about writing this book um, I made a trip to the north part of Chengdu so the because I don't, like, uh, I'm not from Chengdu, so Chengdu, to me, at that point, Chengdu would be, like, considered the prototype of Yongan. And so that city, to me, was a new city. I came from, like, a nearby town. And to, so I was taken to the north part. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the east part of the city. Yeah, actually, the north and east are both quite round down at that point. So I was taken to the round down part of the city. And I was really, you know, it really struck me to see like all those abandoned, um, factories, um, because I think there were, I couldn't remember the name, but then you see the, the old factories and, and I think some of them might have been like a military factory, you know, for a while, I think. So in China, those are called, well, it's called Sanxian Gongchen, I think maybe it's like three, line three project. Um, um, it's like the, the country decided it's just in case we're going to go into a war with Soviet Union and we're going to oh, yeah. um, establish like a series of military um, factories, mostly in this inner land. So like Chengdu, Chongqing. So there were like factories like that. And at that point would have been abandoned. But then people who um, moved to Chengdu from some northern city or, you know, the, I don't know where they came from, but like the community. Um, So like the factory workers and then their family and then maybe they would have like a hospitals you know all those communities surrounding this factory the the whole thing moved from somewhere else to Chengdu and then they speak i think people there they would speak mandarin mm. and it's like this enclosed society and now sort of being forgotten because then this whole project was canceled after the soviet union um you know just Collapsed. I don't know what the word and so yeah, it's kind of like this this group of people that was just left, like forgotten by history, and um, and then they were like, you know, kind of trying to f- find new aims for them to um continuing to reside in this city, and yeah, and and I think that I was really struck by that image of seeing those abandoned factory in the more random part of the city and encountering people from those communities um, that might have inspired say the first beast at least mm. like the um, the sorrowful beast right.
0: yeah fantastic answer yeah I'll just mention uh, my favorite beast from the book or at least the one that I maybe identified with the most um, because although I'm often you know I'm often quite cheerful I do have quite a fairly strong melancholy side to my personality and I'm uh, doing literature podcast so I guess I'm fairly bookish and there are some kind of bookish downbeat uh, beasts in the book. And they're the impasse beasts. And, yeah, I know you can you have a pretty interesting thing you can say about um, where their <laughs> name uh, is drawn from. And you've, you have free license here to uh, explain as much as you want.
1: Oh, I I feel awful for explaining it because I I hate to do like a chinese explaining. <laughs> it's like people please listen to me tell you something very specific about my culture. <laughs> but yeah, I was just saying last time like the ink pass um um in chinese like the chinese name of this beast was Chongtu. So Chongtu was a very specific specific phrase that first um, appeared, actually I haven't really done the research. It might have not be the first time, but the most famous <laughs> association um, between Qiong uh, Tu and then the literary image will be this um, Jing dynasty poet whose name is Ranji. So he'd be riding like a donkey or a horse. And then whenever he goes, he roams in the wilderness and then he just felt he has hit the end and then he'd cry and then go home. So that that was like something he does. So then we have um an idiom which is called chongtu So it's like the cry you have when you hit the end. It's really to de- it's to describe I think it's to describe this um this psyche of his uh, or, or of this type of literary being is like naturally like innately depressed. <laughs> And I think that sort of a um, literary psyche and really affected and generations after generations of Chinese literary people. So it had become a very sort of an important an um, image. What would you call, would you say that's like a, a Chinese literary consciousness? Mm. And yeah, so that was I think I might have said a lot more last time, but <laughs> pretty much that was Yeah,
0: yeah. I think I think that that's about what you said. Yeah, I'd never heard that story before. I, I'm willing to bet loads of the listeners um are have found that really interesting. And I can imagine one or two of them might be diving into Google or, or Baidu um after they're finished listening.
1: Yeah. If I if I could add, I just I just wanted to add this one mm. bit is like this particular poet, like this Jin Danist poet. So they he belonged to a group where we call it's like jeweling Xian, So it's like seven cents in the bamboo forest. So this literary group, and they were all kind of famous for like their eccentric behaviors. And I think research has shown that all of them are like really heavy drug users. So they're just like high all the time. That that sort of explains, like (laughs) he just rides his donkey and cries and goes home because he's like high all the time. And and I thought that was very interesting because that was not emphasized obviously on the textbook, Mm. but the fact like they really believe in using drugs (laughs) don't know what i'm trying to promote who knows <laughs> but i think that is an that is an aspect you know like the, the the heavy using of drugs really affected you know really became like the main thing of their literature like for that generation for that sort of period and it sort of um it developed into this um special kind of like spirit like I was saying it's like this special uh, literary psyche and Mm. yeah
0: yeah I remember um on on round one I forget exactly how it came up but I was making a point that I've I've had in my head for a while which is that there are some things that are really specific to one culture or another but there are other things that are Mm. quite I think quite easy to understand so like Based on like having having spent time in China, having you know visited museums, read stuff, blah 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 blah. Um, the, the archetype of the kind of disappointed or frustrated scholar who couldn't get into the exams or couldn't get as far enough into his uh, career as he wanted to get and kind of lives a dejected life, that might be fairly specific to um, China and Chinese history. But I think at least as a Westerner, it makes a huge amount of sense to me. Um, it's it's easy to relate to. Um, and I forget exactly how I got onto it last time, but I remember my Chinese friends would sometimes say, well, some of them would some, say something along the lines of, to me, uh, oh, you're a, a Westerner, you don't understand uh, Chinese family values, you, you value individual freedom and blah, blah, blah. And I would kind of go, huh, wait a minute, I think you've misunderstood. Of course, we have fam- we place importance on family values and so on back where I'm from. But yeah, maybe it's mm. just weighted differently um there it's the same things but the scales are tilting a different way
1: yeah i i think this is quite typical isn't it in the sense of i know this i don't know if i should keep like sort of nagging about mm. it but i think it's quite important it's like we consider each other you know people in china and people from the let's just say western countries um people tend to consider other people from a different tribe from a different culture the strange beast right but where in reality it's just like the story within the strange beast of China is like everybody could be a strange beast, but that strange beast also is yourself. We have so much inseminarity r- rather than having things differently. Like those are both sort of, you know, like, valid aspects of our beings but at the same time i think it just depends on which aspect we're being emphasized
0: totally yeah like i know a, a stereotype about a, a western person might be oh they're so extroverted and selfish blah blah, blah. and a stereotype about a chinese person might be there they're more quiet and reserved but like the reality is you know if you live in the uk you'll meet plenty of people who are quiet and reserved and you go over to china you'll you'll, you'll meet people who are They are the, you know, the stereotype of a Western personality. So yeah, I think you're right. Um, It makes more sense in many ways to take people as strange, um, strange beasts, things you can't boil down to any kind of template. Right. So that's our fun questions all done. Um, Now on to just the the very last section, uh, further reading. So only a few days have passed since uh, take one. I actually did finish the book I was reading in that time. I was reading uh, Beijing Coma. I finished that and I've now picked up a much smaller book, uh, also a translated Chinese one. It's Yu Hua's China in 10 Words, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But what about you guys? What are you reading just now? Jeremy, do you want to go first?
2: Uh, sure, yes. Um, right now I'm reading um, Polly Barton's book, 50 Sounds, um, which is coming out from Fitzcarraldo this April. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy. Um, it, it's a kind of essay memoir about um, how she came to be a translator and about her time in Japan, because um, she spent a lot of time there. Um, but the most exciting thing about it is how it's organized, which is, as the title implies, around 50 different types of Japanese onomatopoeia. Um, and she sort of extrapolates from the way the Japanese language describes these sounds to much larger themes. Um, but the best way to illustrate this is if I just read you a selection of um, some of the contents. Um, mm, fantastic. Th- these are just a few of the chapter chapter headings. So this is just the table of contents. Um, but there are chapters called things like uka uka, the sound of all this being slightly wrong. (laughs) Oroboro, the important sound of things falling apart. Gutari, the sound of your words having more power than you thought, or unexpectedly saying what you mean.
0: Mm. That's, uh, as a podcaster, I can relate.
2: I I mean, and, and the book lives up to its chapter headings. But it's just a really... Um, interesting but also visceral um, way of organizing the book because sounds and, and the emotions and memories they evoke in us um, can be really powerful um, and she's a really thrilling writer in the way she captures these sensations but also digs down deeper um, past the surface to show what else is going on underneath it's, um It's fascinating, it's a great book.
0: Fantastic. Uh, One more time, what was it called?
2: Uh, Fifty Sounds by Polly Barton.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Jeremy. Mm -hmm. And Yen, what are you reading?
1: Well, I was saying last time that uh, I have a thick pile of different books um, on my reading list because I sort of uh, shuffle (laughs) from book to book. And so, since Jeremy mentioned this, I was just i immediately googled it and it looks really fascinating. I think I'm gonna buy it when it and when it's coming out and so, in the spirit of this very sort of um this book like the the book Jeremy mentioned, I thought it was a book for people who are very interested um in words and languages so in the spirit of the nomination of this book, I'm gonna <laughs> mention there's another book I'm reading is an um, it's from this um, um British writer, I believe. Her name is Ely Williams. I think she just had um a novel coming out, it's called The Liar's Dictionary. And this one I'm reading is trip um and other stories. So it's her short story collection, and it's it's really clever, and it's a lot about like words, like different um different kind of fun words. I couldn't really think of like a prominent example. But I think she seems to be a writer whose relation with English language, like with different words, are very close. Um, That I really enjoy. And I think reading um, at least this short story collection, I think I might get the novel at a certain point. Yes. Yeah, so.
0: Awesome. Cool. And I realize I, I've reversed the order of these questions. Um, So last our last question is, do you have any books to recommend for our listeners? So that could be stuff. Somewhat tangentially related to strange beasts of China, or it could be just anything you think the show's listeners might really enjoy. If you got anything that you'd recommend,
1: yeah, Jeremy, go first, maybe.
2: <laughs> yes, well, um, the um, I, I think I did recommend this the last time round. Um, Kaiming Chang's Beast Perfect. Yeah. Um, right. Um, so uh, Kaiming Chang's Beast came out um, last year. And it's about a Taiwanese-American family's um, struggle to to survive, really, Um, not even so much to fit in as just to get a toehold in an inhospitable country. And the young daughter um, copes with that um, through vivid feats of imagination, a lot of which are animalistic in nature, hence the name of the book. And the cover shows um, a young girl who is dressed as a tiger with a tail. And and the the protagonist of the novel actually does have a tiger's tail, which may or may not be metaphorical. Again, it inhabits a very um, uncanny space where a lot of it is fantastical or imaginative, but it's also not really a naturalistic world. And I, I love that kind of ambiguous space. So a lot of it is very resonant um, with strange beasts, even beyond the um, coincidence of the bestiary.
0: Thanks for the answer. Um, I'm going to throw in some too, and here's two really good books. I know listeners will enjoy. Um, One is a little book called Chili Bean Paste Clan uh, by one of our guests on the show right now. (laughs) That's uh, one of three works I believe of Yang's yeah, available in translation the other one is White Horse which I've not read so I assume it's great but um I I, I don't know but um The Chili Bean base, based Paste Clan is a fantastic <laughs> novel um it's um, very different as we said from Strange Beasts but um I can't recommend it enough and the other one I'll recommend it's I think yeah the only full-length uh, Jeremy Tiang translation I've read Second Sister um which I guess has something in common with Strange Beasts in that uh, we've got a female um, protagonist involved in an investigation. But apart from that, it's really different. But I suppose the other thing it has in common is it just reads really smoothly, um, reads just as well, if not better, than lots of untranslated books out there. Maybe that's a bit of a crass way to to, um, promote it, but I was turning the page as fast as I possibly could. I really enjoyed reading that one. And the third one I'll recommend isn't I'm not going to try and flatter you the review uh, it's the book I mentioned earlier in the episode I am the messenger by Marcus Suzak I think if, if anyone reads or has read strange beasts and they really enjoy the kind of detective side of things the investigating first strangers then your friends then yourself and if you like the kind of combination of a I know, fairly light tone that gets really emotionally um I can't think of a better word than deep but that really um, gets deep into a person's life and their state of mind. It's just it's, that's why I love that book. It's so great, so I'd recommend that as well. Um, that's that's just about it for our interview. Yan um, and Jeremy, is there anything we've missed um, that you guys would like to say before I say my thank yous and my goodbyes?
1: Um, I want to recommend Jeremy's book. Um, <laughs> You've um, oh because... yeah, that's right. Because just on the note of um, how enjoyable it is to read Jeremy's translation, because he himself is a terrific writer, I really wanted to recommend Jeremy's short story collection because that was the book really I fell in love with, Jeremy Tan, the writer. um, And it's called It Never Rings on National Day. And it's such a gorgeous book. And I think geographically, um, it just... It takes me to so many places. I think like when I first come across with that, when I first read that book um, up to this point, like I've lived in a foreign country for maybe, I don't know how many years, not like substantial amount, but I think it really speaks to me as my journey as an, an outsider, a person who's like constantly roaming who doesn't know where the idea home is. I think that book really speaks to me in many different ways and from its via its many short stories and my own experience of like living in different places living in different language yeah so I I really would strongly recommend that book for anybody who enjoyed Strange Beasts of China and I think you might have enjoyed more Jeremy's writing than my content (laughs) should really go read Jeremy's books and, and he has a novel also called The, uh, the State of Emergency and um, yeah I, I think Jeremy's um, oh I don't um, I don't know how Jeremy could do so many different things at the same time to be honest I must say that I'm very envious.
2: Oh bless you thank you again I mean I should say I'm very envious <laughs> and for being able to write in two languages um, extremely effectively um, which is like having two different voices I think as a writer that's great. Um, everyone, look up for Yen's English language work, which is coming your way soon. Hopefully, hopefully,
0: <laughs> exciting. I'll be sure to promote that on the show when um, when the time arises. I remember, oh, I,
1: mean. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember first time around, Jeremy, I asked you um, a question about "It Always Rains on National Day." Um, I know the answer is yes, but I'll just ask it anyway. Does national does the nation in National Day refer to uh, Singapore?
2: It does, yes. Uh, National Day is um, the day Singapore became independent, um, August 9th, and the title of the book refers to an urban legend that it doesn't rain on National Day when there is a big outdoors parade um, because, according to various explanations, um, the government seeds the clouds um, beforehand to make sure that it's all rained out by the time of the parade, or um, there are more fanciful theories that they carry out um, magic rituals um, to keep the rain away. Um, I've heard all kinds of things. No one will confirm or deny anything, but there is this kind of collective memory that somehow it does indeed never rain during the parade. Um, And that has become a kind of metaphor for how, efficient and controlled and manicured
0: Singapore can be fantastic answer um I guess it really is time to say goodbye now so I'll just say again thank you both so much for coming on the show and I guess being being so happy to do this the second take I, I really appreciate that and it's been a fantastic chat and I could go on and go on and go on saying how great it's been but It's because it's true. So we have reached the end of the show. Uh, Before I bid farewell, here's some plugs. So if you're a new listener and you'd like to subscribe to the show, well, you're in luck. There's about a million zillion ways you can do it. Um, The show's available through through all your uh, favourite or least favourite podcast providers. So think along the lines of uh, iTunes, Google Podcasts, I, I like to use Player FM, I think that was because it worked well in China, or it was easy to download the mp3s and not just stream them, I forget, but just arbitrarily that's who I use, Uh, Spotify, we're on Spotify too. Uh, I also upload the episodes to YouTube, that's more so people can find me than than, than that people can subscribe, but we are on YouTube. I think the podcast homepage is a good place to go too uh, because that's where I put all the show notes in full and the episode art and there's lots of interesting things like you can browse by different tags I assign to the episodes. So, for example, if you want to check out only, let's say, the uh, episodes on Chinese sci-fi, there's a button for that and there's the support page as well. So, speaking of support, if you'd like to you know, give a, give something back uh, to the show, basically, and get something in return for giving something back, then uh, go to the support page or uh, directly go to the shows Patreon or the Buy Me A Coffee, if you want to buy me a proverbial coffee, um, Patreon and the Podbean premium feed will get you access to all the bonus shows. There are 30 or 40 plus of them now, hours and hours and hours of content, uh, thoughts on like uh, non-fiction books, which I wouldn't do on the show. Thoughts on books written in English, but with some kind of China connection, um, or Sinosphere connection, Uh, those are on there and preliminary thoughts. So when I uh, have just read a book and kind of like my initial reactions, I guess it's the old uh, internet or not old. fairly new, I suppose, reaction format, my reaction to strange beasts. And then if it was a video, there would be my shocked face on the thumbnail or something like that. (laughs) But yeah, there's your your ways you can support the show Uh, tangibly, which means with money, by the way. But that is not the best way you can support the show. Uh, The best way you can support the show is by spreading the word. Because ultimately, I'm not in this for money making or even a career. I am in this for the love of it and to spread the word. So you you guys can spread the word too. Uh, if you know someone who would like the show, then tell them. <laughs> um, if you'd like to boost the show a bit um, beyond just like sharing episodes, then do leave uh, reviews and comments and ratings on whichever podcast service you use. Um, iTunes is a really good one. I found that um, there's like a kind of two sides to having a very diverse worldwide listenership. And the plus side is, um, well, that you're not in a bubble, that's the plus side, and you, you're more open to reviews like that. The downside is, um, at least on the iTunes or Apple Podcast uh, platform, every review goes to a, the diff- a different um, geographic version of the Apple Podcasts um, store or library or whatever it's called. So, we have something like 8 reviews, but if you're on applepodcast.com or whatever you own, the American one. You'll only see a couple of them. I think there's even a separate UK one. So I only see the UK ones. And then I know that there's um, a really nice uh, review on, I think, the Brazilian. No, Peruvian It's a review from a guy in South America. Anyway, um, a a really nice listener of the show. So given the fact that iTunes divides us all into our little geographic camps, let's fight that and (laughs) um, either get reviews onto all of them or cross post or whatever. Um, I'm not really urging you to do that. I just think it's an interesting uh, quirk of how iTunes podcast reviews work. Wow, we've really moved on from plugs, haven't we? It's just me rambling again. I'll, I'll just do the bit where I tell you who to tell. So tell your friends, tell your family and tell yourself because you may know none of those people. They may be a beast deep down inside. But if you do figure out what kind of beast they are and they still want to talk to you, tell the beast about the show too, because that's a an angle of diversity I think we're really missing. We have lots of human listeners, but we could do with more beasts. Unless, of course, all you people are beasts. That is a possibility. So whatever you are, tune in for the next episode when that comes out. And do browse the back catalogue as well. Loads of great stuff there too. Anyway, Sai Jian.